Good evening. Welcome to the Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Liam. Thank you, Garland. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. A controversial FBI agent resigned after being implicated in acting to suppress the Hunter Biden story. Joining us now to discuss this subject is Nico House. He's a political activist, independent journalist and podcaster. Nico, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks for having me back, gentlemen. Happy to be here. The New York Post reports a top FBI agent at the Washington field office reportedly resigned from his post last week after facing intense scrutiny over allegations. He helped shield Hunter Biden from criminal investigations into his laptop and business dealings. You know, the the sad part about this, Nico, and that is if you try to look at this from an unbiased perspective and 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 use the history of the dirty dealings that the FBI has done and say, I don't trust this, then all of a sudden you're a lover of Donald Trump and there and you can't be trusted. And it's just madness. Uh, Nico, your thoughts on all of this? I mean, I, I feel like it was it's been pretty obvious that the FBI, for whatever reason, has had some powerful elements uh, protecting the Democratic Party or at least at bare minimum. They've been avidly against Donald Trump, and I don't believe that's because uh, Donald Trump is some, like, uh, savior of the people. I think it's more so because he's just so unpredictable, right? That's the problem with Trump as far as the, the establishment is concerned. We, we saw that Andrew McCabe was fired for his bias regarding the Russiagate situation. We saw that McCabe was forced to resign. We, you know, we saw, you know, the Lisa Page, Peter Strzok situation. So this is really just par for the course as far as the FBI is concerned. But you're right. If you look at this objectively— um, this is just a continuation. But if you say, if you call it what it is, then it's, oh, you must love Trump. It's like, no, I just acknowledge reality. <laughs> it's interesting as you read this story that they, t- they, they put it in the context of this is the same month the Post first started reporting on Biden's abandoned laptop. Uh, Zuckerberg revealed last week that the social media giant suppressed the Post bombshell Hunter Biden report. Get to the laptop. Get to the context. <laughs> this is, to me, this is, this is, uh, there are, uh, there are some, I see some parallels here with Hunter Biden's laptop that we saw with the DNC server. And Hillary Clinton's emails. Don't, well, yeah, I, I'm, yeah, I'm putting all that in the same, in the same box. Don't, don't distract me with the laptop and the people that mishandled the laptop. Tell me what's on it. Don't distract me with with the email server and Russia hacking into the server. Tell me the contents of the emails. No, I was going to say it, I, I agree. And, and you know, to New York Post credit, they have been revealing the details of the laptop. It's more so this this full investigation where they're finding some scapegoat who's probably he was 25 years in. He was probably going to retire anyway. Let's be honest. He's probably going to get his pension because we know how this game goes. And they just found somebody who was on the way out and, and let him take the fall for it. But at the end of the day, I agree. This is just a simple distraction that that's supposed to serve the interests of either political party right ahead of midterms. But at the end of the day, who's getting prosecuted? Who's revealing the, who's talking about the contents? I know they talked about this, uh, the hearings where they figured out that somebody was it's disrupting the investigation or that the FBI was disrupting its own investigation. But what about the contents of the laptop? Were they discussed during the hearing? 
Is anybody being brought up on charges of pedophilia or any of the other stuff we've seen on Hunter Biden's laptop? Right. Is Joe Biden being pressed about the, the contents of the laptop? Well, that's that's my point. Joe Biden, Joe Biden was the commissar of Ukraine. Wow. And, and so, folks, you got to You got to tell me what was Joe doing? Who was he paying and who was paying Joe? That's what I want to know. Yep. And why was he able to get away with it for so long? And I mean, to be quite frank, who, who's allowing him to get away with it still to this day? Uh, this FBI agent that they just walked out the door. <laughs> but, that, but that's just but we know how we know how these these institutions, right. these power structures work. There's somebody above him who allowed that to happen. Somebody's reviewing everything he's doing. You know, guys, I think something that's else that's interesting here is if you look at the at this case in a broad in, in, in a broader context, the officer, excuse me, the FBI agent Tebow. So apparently this guy, this person tried to kill the investigation into Hunter Biden and he improperly tried to mark it in the FBI system so that it couldn't be opened in the future. Right. When you look at that. But then you look at what happened with Donald Trump where literally the FBI is investigating Donald Trump and the people who are investigating him at that time are texting each other saying, we've got to stop Donald Trump from becoming president. We've got a plan. We've got an insurance policy. You look at put all that together and that someone, a guy named Kevin Kleinsmith, was literally found guilty, guilty of violating the law in pursuing Donald Trump. When you look at what happened with Hillary Clinton, where it was the investigation was written in a way that would made it clear that she was violating the law. And that was rewritten in a way that showed that she wasn't. When you look at these anomalies and they all go in one direction, it points to the FBI is a corrupt but B, as we've been talking about, a tool for much more powerful entities that say we got to protect Biden, we got to protect Hunter for our reason, Trump's over here, we got to go after him, that they're a tool being used for more powerful entities. Your thoughts? And uh, let's not forget about the black liberationists oh, yeah. who had their houses raided by the FBI not even a few weeks ago. So clearly they're being used as a tool for the powerful um, in ways that, in, for ways, in ways, and for reasons that we may not even know completely, but we do know that the way this stuff works, I don't care. They, like they put that, oh, he tried to mark it wrong in the FBI system. Like, bro, okay, this is some 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 cartel leader or some the head of some gang in, in Chicago. This is Hunter Biden, bro. Whatever you did, it took approval from somebody, or you would have never been bold enough to do it, right? Like this, can we all agree on that? That's how this. Like if, when I was a paralegal, when I was in the Army, whatever this, I was the one who drafted the charges. I was the one who usually conducted the investigation. But guess what? Whatever I sent up the chain, I had to go through a superior to get approval for before it went up the chain. So you can't tell me that some, every, a story that everybody in the world is paying attention to. Anybody who cares about politics and the, and the outcome of the presidency anyway, all of a sudden he was able to do this uh, on his own accord? Come on. This isn't, it's the power structure is finding a scapegoat so that somebody else can avoid accountability. Again, it parallels to the DNC server and the emails. It, it, to me, they're all part and parcel of, of the same deception. House conservatives prep plans to impeach Biden. Republicans hoping to seize control of the House in November are already setting their sights on what is, for many of them, a top priority impeaching biden uh, your thoughts nico house it's a sham <laughs> it's an mm-hmm. election tool 
I don't believe it. it like they say, oh, he's high crime. Go to the high crime. Oh, he's got the border open for everybody. It's like, hold on, bro, double back. <laughs> you mean the guy <laughs> who literally has more people held in these detention centers than any other president in history is somehow also the one responsible for having a totally open border? That doesn't make any sense. That means the border isn't open, doesn't it? I mean, just correct me if I'm wrong, but that's literally what it means, that the border is not open if you can be held in a detention center if you cross that border. And not, and not only that, coronavirus pandemic and Afghanistan. They're going to impeach him behind those three things? The withdrawal. Exactly. Well, it's the same thing that the Democrats did whenever they were trying to impeach Trump, right? It was, always, it was always an election tool. It was never meant to be taken seriously. It was meant to wrap him up in controversy for the entire time. Now, here's what we said would happen. I, I believe that we even had a conversation about this very specific thing. We said, okay, Democrats, are you going to play, if you're going to play these petty games with Donald Trump right. as far as this impeachment is concerned, mm-hmm. wait until they get elected because you're about to deal with the exact same thing. Yep. And look, here we are. <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly. You know, we had this I believe th- that we had this discussion about um, on the air about that, that with, with, with you about, hey, look, a number impeach- of time. yeah, this impeachment is now going to be the standard game. As soon as the next guy gets in, the other party has to do their obligatory, you know, two or three impeachments over the course of the time to feed uh, red meat to their base. But here's the other thing, Nico. These impeachments now are all on behalf of ideology or pol- politics of the system. They will impeach him for something to do with China to show us how evil China is and why we need to go to war with them. They'll impeach him something to do with the border that's completely bogus because he's he's in, you know uh, deporting more people than Trump deported. They will not look at something that he's actually doing that is corruption and go after him for that because that's the name of the game. They will not go after each other for corruption because they're all so corrupt. Nico. Yeah, I mean, I 100% agree. It's, it's like so the way Joe Biden handled the pandemic, like, I mean, let's be real. Like, he wasn't the president for the majority of the pandemic as far as the policies that were getting introduced to deal with the pandemic. So that's just like, that's just reality. Now, if you want to say, like, and, and, and as far as the subsequent, like, handling of the pandemic, I would argue that he handled it badly. But I would also argue that in a lot of ways Donald Trump handled it badly. And they're not criticizing him in, in, in the same way that they're criticizing Joe Biden. And, like, let's be real. There, there, even the criticisms of the way Joe, or the criticisms, excuse me, of the way Joe Biden is handling the handled the pandemic, they're like not even sticky. Like they're they're not going to stick. I don't even know. Like the thing that I would have a, that I had a problem with, the Republicans aren't really mentioning in any significant like in any significant way. My issue was how you handle trade, how you handle travel, how many livelihoods have been destroyed. And to be real, real, that all started when Republicans could have did something about it under Trump and decided not to. And, and Democrats, too, don't get me wrong, but both, both parties are absolutely guilty of mishandling this pandemic and destroying small businesses and destroying the middle class overall. Because that's what they've both been, been doing. So, like, we have so many examples of points of the things that Joe Biden should legitimately be impeached over. His mental health being the first one on the list. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's not a hyperbole. That's, like, that's, not the, that's not me being petty. That's me watching this man try to shake hands with Casper and all of his cousins multiple times. Okay. So, well, and when you when you look at least for the things that they're mentioning here in this Hill article, these are all a incredibly subjective. Uh, You may not particularly like what he's doing with his border policy. You may not particularly like his COVID policy. You may not particularly uh, appreciate the manner in which 
he withdrew troops from Afghanistan. But that's that's your opinion. That's subjective. That's why you have presidents and administrations that involve that engage in policy. Those are policy decisions. Those aren't constitutional uh, affronts. If I was if I was a Republican, Wilmer, I'd be pissed. I'd be livid because here you are. I read a headline if I'm a Republican. Oh, wow. They're going to actually impeach Biden. Well, cool, because this is all the stuff that he's been doing wrong. So I know we have plenty to go off of. I know this could be legitimate and we could have a chance to actually get him out. But no, 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 no. (laughs) You see this. You see this. High crimes. It's like, well, what are the high crimes? And what's even more interesting is if What's the misdemeanor? Yeah, exactly. Right. Let's start with that one. But what's, what's more interesting is if correct me if I'm wrong, there is no mention of Joe Biden in his affairs in the Ukraine and protecting Joe Biden on behalf of those affairs. Am I crazy? Did I read that? Yeah, it might find that some, some of that might like lead to some bio research labs or it might lead back to mm-hmm. Mitt Romney or John McCain or some of these other people that are over there getting paid. They ain't going over there, man. That's an ATM. And they might, hey, look, some of the Republicans might have to delete stand with Ukraine outside of their bio. Yeah. How about that? Yeah, they, they don't want to. That's the ATM. Nobody wants to pull a plug on the ATM. <laughs> Nico House, political activist, independent journalist, podcaster. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. IAEA inspectors from the United Nations have arrived in Kiev and are preparing to travel to the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant. Also, the Belgian energy minister has said that the EU may face a decade of terrible winters due to the lack of Russian energy. Gee, I wonder how he knew exactly 12. Why not 13? Joining us now to discuss this is a man who can answer that important question, Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Garland, Dr. Leon, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the show. Now, before you tell us precisely why we there's going to be 12 terrible winners instead of, say, 11 or 14 and a half, we got something important we got to get to. Inspectors from the International Atomic Energy Agency dispatched to assess the situation at the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant have arrived in Kiev. CNN reported on Tuesday, and even though CNN reported it, I'm going to believe it this time. Mark Sloboda, what do we need to know about Zaporozhye and uh, all kinds of nuclear stuff going on there? Okay, so uh, the delegation from the the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy, has arrived uh, in Kiev. Uh, They are supposed to arrive um, at the power plant tomorrow and will be there, uh, as far as I know, until at least the 3rd of September, although there is some speculation that uh, the uh, team may become a permanent fixture, although that is uh, just a rumor at this point. Um, One thing that we should not expect from them when they arrive there is some type of uh oh ukraine did it oh or or you know uh it's that dastardly putin bombing himself after all um because that is not within the purview 
of this team, right? They're not going to be doing that. They're not going to be saying that. And at least according to Russian sources, the team uh, is composed of a majority of members from neutral nations, i.e. not from NATO, not Russia, uh, not involved in the conflict. So that at least is a good sign. But they're going to be assessing uh, the operational um, the correct operational protocols are being uh, performed by the plant, and they're going to assess the material conditions. Um, there is some hope that the Kiev regime will stop firing on the plant once they arrive. However, they did just launch their great southern counteroffensive as um, um, uh, uh, stalled, half-hearted, beaten back, and suffering uh, truly brutal casualties as it has, there is the question of whether this is being designed to prevent the team from reaching Zaporozhia, because of course they are shelling along exactly the travel route that um, they will have to pass through Kiev regime controlled territory to reach the plant. Furthermore, according to local officials um, in uh, Energodar, which is the town where the plant is located, the Kiev regime shelling actually hit the resort facilities. I take it, they, it it's uh, something like um, um, for, for visiting officials um, at the plant where they could stay. So they they may have actually shelled uh, the domicile that will that will that were was to house the um, IAEA team. Um, I hope they get to the plant tomorrow. I have not heard anything yet, but definitely their physical security has got to be assessed, uh, assessed as at risk at this point, which may be the entire point of launching this great Ballyhood Southern counteroffensive now. And elaborate on that well Ballyhood Southern offensive. Ukrainian forces, this is from the New York Times, launched ground assaults on uh, yesterday in multiple areas along the front in the Kherson region of southern Ukraine, stepping up a counteroffensive aimed at recapturing territory. And it was late last week that Americans were being warned to leave the region, that Russia was going to launch this incredibly bloody and uh, intense uh, assault and now we've got the southern assault by Ukraine. So uh, help us understand who's launching what, where, and why. Yeah. Okay. So I mean, they uh, from from reports coming in, they have finally launched this great southern counteroffensive all across the front line in the south, basically from from Kherson uh, to Zaporozhye, all across uh, a large stretch of territory in the south uh, with focus at five different points. And supposedly four of those were beaten back soundly uh, with extremely high casualties. And the remaining one has... Uh, uh, penetrated a Russian line and managed to seize a hamlet that the pre-war population uh, was 117. It's extremely unlikely that there's still anyone there at this point. Um, 
that that is uh, the the whole extent of of the success of the counteroffensive so far. Meanwhile, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean a hundred and seven? They ca- they captured a hamlet that was inhabited by one hundred and seventeen people. Yeah, it's kind of a, a few little shacks in the middle of the steppe. Oh my goodness, that's I'm surprised that that hasn't been front page news. Yeah, well, you know. Um, it's, it's got a rather difficult name for the Western media to say, oh, so I, I oh. won't, I won't bother you with those details, but, okay. um, there is, uh, according to the Russian ministry of defense, this great accomplishment, uh, has cost them more, some 1,200, uh, Kiev regime servicemen killed, not casualties killed uh along with 48 tanks 46 infantry fighting vehicles 37 other combat vehicles and supposedly uh two Sioux fighters uh which would make this incredibly costly and they're so intent on continuing this um obviously for a political reasons that they are na- even now there uh, reports that they're stripping the garrison of Odessa and basically everywhere else to try to drag as many well let's be frank as much cannon fodder the the problem here is this is terrible terrain for an attacker they have got to cross big open flat step here this is not like the battle in donbass right now with with uh trenches and fortifications and tight urban agglomerations in hilly territory this is flat open step that they have to charge across against an opponent that has complete air superiority and a 15 to 1 artillery advantage the videos coming out of this uh, I, I mean it it, Su- suicide. it would almost be absurd if it wasn't so tragic. It is a suicide attack. It is a suicide attack. And I feel nothing but pity for any of these troops that have been dragged into this that are not from the neo-Nazi battalions. Here's an interesting article. EU facing a decade of winter crisis. Belgium, the EU could suffer terrible winters in the years ahead if the bloc's leaders don't take immediate steps to impose a price cap on uncontrolled gas prices, according to Belgian Energy Minister Tin van der Straten. The next five to ten winters will be terrible if nothing is done. Here's the thing I don't understand. Five to ten, right? How do you know it'll end in 10 years? You know what I mean? It's like things are going bad and they're going to be bad for 10 years. How do you, what kind of a plan do you have to even fix it in the 11th? It sounds to me, well, what he's really saying is we are screwed from now on. But if I say anything more than 10 years, then people will understand that we're screwed from now on and they may panic. Mark, your thoughts. What you don't know. Uh, what the Belgian energy minister, Der Streiten, has uh, discovered via use of the EU's time machine is that in 10 years' time, the EU will have developed working nuclear fusion. Uh, so th- they'll, they'll be safe in 10 years. Uh, that is sarcasm. I, I do not believe the EU has a time machine uh, or that nuclear fusion will be developed in 10 years. I think magic, I think black magic would be a better plan for them at this point. Not that it would work, but it would be better than the actual plan that they have. That's all I'm saying. Some some Harry Potter stuff. Yeah. Well, I mean, they did sign a deal with Azerbaijan 
that by 2027 will cover 6% of the energy that they've lost by uh, switching to Russia. And once again, um, uh, official from Saudi Arabia's uh, Aramco um, said it point blank. Europe has no other option for, for energy than Russia. So they, you know, basically they they better get in line. And I, I, I want to read to you a tweet that will maybe bring the extent of the energy crisis that Europeans are now facing home. This is just a, a tweet that got viral attention on uh, Twitter, on, on, on the internet today, from a small cafe in Ireland, from a small town in Ireland, the Poppy Fields Cafe, right? Uh, the, the tweeter's name is, it's at Dolan Geraldine. All right. And this went kind of viral today. And she put up a, 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 a photo of her electricity bill for the last two months. And she says, I got this electricity bill today. How in the name of God is this possible? We're a small cafe shop in Westmeath. And the total due energy bill for the, the two months for this small coffee shop is 9,836 euros and 92 cents, mm. uh, which seems pretty much like from what we've heard from a lot of other businesses, there's a lot of tweets like this that have gone viral. It's going to shut businesses down all over. It's going to shut industry. It's going to shut businesses down. But when the tweeter um, who says this, how in the name of God is this possible? You might notice that the Poppy Fields Cafe Twitter account has a blue and yellow Ukrainian flag <laughs> in their in their title profile, right? Um, so I would suggest to uh, uh, Geraldine that that is how in God's name this is possible because your uh, political elite has decided – that Ukraine is, uh, you know, fighting for the Zelensky re regime in Ukraine is worth this nine with this practically uh, 10,000 euro energy bill. And Sputnik International has a piece, Europeans paying for Brussels irrational and absurd energy policy while U.S. profits Ordinary Europeans are being made to pay for their leaders' quote-unquote irrational policies in relation to Russia, while Brussels' American allies get rich from an energy bonanza. This is from Dmitry Peskov, the uh, Russian presidential spokesman. So I think that kind of speaks volumes, or what you've just uh, given us is a, is a clear example of this. And so... We have just about a minute and a half left. How significant is the political unrest going to become as the temperatures drop and people's anger rises? Well, the one thing is the temperatures will be so cold and they will not be able to get so warm. It will make it hard for people to protest. And we're hearing that it's going to be a bad winter. Uh, on the other hand, the excess deaths much like during the uh, corona, the height of the coronavirus crisis, is going to uh, have high economic, uh, high political costs, and the economic damage may be even worse. But Russia, on the other hand, 
um, is because of the Western sanctions is making record oil profits, $97 billion from oil. And they're not the only ones. Um, there's a report out today that the U.S.'s ExxonMobil has quadrupled their profits, profits, even as Americans face record high gas prices. So some people are doing uh, terribly, usually, you know, the ones that were roped into this economic war of sanctions. Uh, meanwhile, the the country that was the target of those is actually doing pretty well and making, uh, you know, all of this pay for itself. Someone has not thought things through and planned it very well. And whoever is the economic advisors of these governments in the U in the EU and the U.S. really, really, really needs to lose their jobs. Well, let's hope the old Zen adage, a fool who persists in his folly be will become wise, uh, is applicable today. Although the UK is about to put Liz Truss in, uh, in office, so maybe that doesn't apply. You're yeah, no, no good sign there. <laughs> yes. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Western journalists who challenged the NATO narrative face the wrath of U.S. and Ukrainian intelligence machines. Recent actions imply a move afoot to label journalists as information terrorists, terrorists opening the door for legal repression. Joining us to discuss this and more, we've got Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thanks. You know, Ray, it is interesting that we are talking about uh, political repression. We're talking about censorship because I know you have an experience with The Washington Post some time ago. And, uh, and, and uh, you know, I would certainly appreciate it if you could uh, share with us uh, the incident of what happened. Well, I was I was lucky, Garland. Uh, it happened to be vacation time and the censors for The Washington Post must have been in the Hamptons uh, <laughs> sipping martinis. Because this got through a letter to the editor. Uh, let me explain. This was seven years ago now, a year after the coup in Kiev, the coup that never appears, is never mentioned in American media or Western media in general. McCain, uh, John McCain of recent memory, and his uh, the anniversary of his death brought this to mind. Um, he wrote an opinion essay where he talked about uh, the annexation of Crimea was without provocation. Got that? Not provoked, or as we say today, unprovoked. Everything is unprovoked. The annexation of Crimea and, of course, the invasion of Ukraine by Putin and Moscow. Well, uh, you know, that was too much for me to bear. So I, um, you know, I, I wrote in a letter to the editor to start out by saying um, McCain was wrong to write that uh, the annexation of Crimea was without provocation. What about the coup in Kiev on the 22nd of February 2014 that replaced President Viktor Yanukovych 
with the pro-Western leaders favoring membership in NATO. Wasn't that provocation? (laughs) Now, I went on, and maybe I'll just read the the rest of it or or excerpts of it. Uh, I went on, and I was really surprised that the Post published this. I said, this glaring omission, that is, not mentioning the coup in Kiev, appears regularly, that is, the omission (laughs) does not appear regularly in in the Washington Post. For example, there was a uh, March 10 item which was titled, quote, Putin had early plan to annex Crimea, end quote. It, it described a, quote, secret meeting, end quote, Mr. Putin held on February 23rd, 2014, during which Russia decided it would take Crimea, end quote. No mention was made of the coup the previous day, like February 22nd. <laughs> so the reader is left to say, whoa, wow, Putin put it into his head to annex Crimea without provocation, okay? I went on to say, I have searched in vain for credible evidence that before the coup, Mr. Putin had any intention of annexing Crimea and I, I've come up short. I couldn't find any. And actually, John Mearsheimer, who is the real guru on this, has asserted that there was there was no assertion, there was no suggestion, there was no accusation by Western governments or the Western press that Russia wanted to take Crimea before the coup in Kiev. Again, February 22nd, 2014. And here's the Post advertising a secret meeting by Putin on February 23rd, where he decides to to seize Crimea. But they don't mention that there was a coup after which the new coup leaders put in by Western services wanted to express the desire not only to bar Russian as an official language, but also to join NATO. I mean, that's provocation enough. Now, the rest of the story has to do with the Ukrainian reaction to that. They reacted very harshly, and I can go into that if you'd like. Please do. Okay. Well, uh, on June, um, well, let's see, this was uh, July 21st, so it was uh, three weeks later. And um, uh, he- here's uh, something by the, quote, Ukrainian Weekly. And they say that... Uh, uh, McGovern has uh, been wrong on this. Uh, President Obama was the one that was wrong. He argued, that is, President Obama, that providing Ukraine with military assistance would provoke Russia. <laughs> Putin didn't need any provocation to invade Ukraine. Unprovoked again, okay? Now, um, he he accuses me of citing, quote, the coup in Kiev. What coup in Kiev? Quote, this nonsense could could be dismissed as another pro-Russian troll parroting the Russian line were it not for the fact that McGovern was former chief of the Soviet foreign policy branch of CIA. (laughs) That goes on to to finish up here. He says, uh, 
one can only shudder at the thought of what kind of advice this high-ranking CIA official provided to various presidential administrations, <laughs> end quote. So this was seven years ago. I was in their headlights for, for making uh, observations, factually based, of course, that what provoked this whole thing, what provoked the annexation of Crimea, was quite simply what happened on the 22nd of February 2014, when there was a coup in Kiev throwing out a pro-Russian, relatively pro-Russian leader, and installing people that we knew were handpicked by U.S. diplomatic officials, because that handpicking appeared on YouTube two and a half weeks before the coup. Okay, you'd think they would have more <laughs> shame, but no, there it was. And that's why I called it, and other historians called it, the most blatant coup in the history of mankind. So I've been subjected to this uh, Ukrainian treatment uh, seven years ago. I'm on the list now. It's a it's a noxious list, actually. I noticed my friend uh, Roger Waters just was added a couple of days ago to the list. Henry Kissinger is on the list. So, uh, you know, they don't go after the big people. They go after small fry like McGovern. So... Uh, if, if I disappear from the airwaves, would you guys look into it? By all means. And uh, uh, Vanessa Bailey writes, a U.S. State Department-sponsored roundtable on countering disinformation was recently held at the National Security and Defense Council of Ukraine. Information terrorists should know that they will have to answer to the law as war criminals, said Andrei Shapovalov. In light of what's going on with the Dugina killing, in light of what's going on with the Mirotvets, um, Mirotvorets, uh, Ukrainian you know, hit site, your thoughts on how you know, the, the the fact that the U.S. State Department is meeting and working with these people, Ray. Well, that's the, uh, the most unconscionable thing. Uh, I pay taxes and so do you both. Uh, the notion that my tax money is going to fund these kinds of McCarthyist organizations, uh, not only in the United States, but in Ukraine. Uh, the most corrupt regime in all of Europe, and uh, Ukraine that has shown its ability and its wish to go after public publicists uh, like Dubina and others before her. I, I wish I were a little younger, I'd be more scared, but I am a small fish. So again, you know, if they come after me, uh, the FBI is going to just step aside. And um, if you don't hear from me, uh, please look into it. Ray, I will personally ask the question, what happened to Ray McGovern? Thanks. <laughs> that would be small solace to, to my family, but at least I'll put that in the record. Mm -hmm. Is this the intelligence apparatchiks in this country? Is this the end run? Is this the intentional circumvention of the Constitution? Well, Wilmer, I wish I could say it was, uh, but the Constitution really doesn't mount to a hill of beans as far as these guys are all concerned. I mean, it's, I mean, let's face it, the Constitution is sort of an artifact. Right now we have the, quote, rules-based Based international. So, yeah, right, okay, right. now I looked it up. I Googled the hell out of it. And guess what? There's no definition for the You can't find anything. <laughs> but I, I think I know what it means. It means that the U.S. didn't break any rules when it invaded Iraq or destroyed Libya. 
because we make the rules. Now, when Russia invaded Ukraine, Russia broke the rules. Why? Because it was unprovoked. Now, everyone says that. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, any military briefing, the Russian illegal and unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Well, I'll let other people deal with the illegal part, and I just remind them that was the was the attack on Iraq legal? I mean, the Secretary General, uh, Secretary General of the UN at the time said no, it wasn't illegal, and he was not as as much in the West's pocket as the current one is. But how about unprovoked? Well, most people who most people who haven't listened to this program probably have no idea that the U.S. was putting medium-range ballistic missiles with nuclear capability in readiness to install in Romania, in Poland, and in Ukraine. Now, what would that mean? Well, that would mean that Putin, as he himself has said, would have about seven to nine minutes to decide whether she should destroy the rest of the world. I mean, hello, that's literally what would happen. He would have to decide whether this was a real attack with nuclear weapons and use them or lose them, as we used to say. Now, if those same holes in the ground already installed in Romania, almost completed in Poland, if they were, they were filled with uh, hypersonic, uh, uh, missiles. Uh, the warning time that Putin himself has said, and it's quite correct, would be five to seven minutes. Now, so unprovoked, Putin was feeling so strongly about this that as our negotiators got ready to meet with the Russian negotiators on the 9th of January this year, he called up Biden on the 30th of December. He wanted some assurance that these kinds of missiles would not be put into Ukraine. As I say, they're already in Romania, or they could be put in Romania. The holes are described as ABM, anti-ballistic missile holes. <laughs> the holes are exactly the same diameter to accommodate Tomahawk, uh, Tomahawk uh, cruise missiles, or these hypersonic missiles. So, what does that leave us? Well, uh, Putin warned that that you know this was five to seven minutes, and that's not enough time. And so, when he called Biden, and most people don't know this, but it's really important. When he called Biden on the thirtieth of December last year, he said, "Look, you know, I need some reassurance. Number one, that you're in charge there." and that will supervise these negotiations. And number two, it would be really good if you promise not to put medium strike missiles in Ukraine. And Biden, by the readout, the Russian readout said, the US has no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, period, end quote. Man, the Russians were, were, were delighted. They danced in the streets for New Year's Eve, okay? And then what happened? In the negotiations, the U.S. forgot about that promise. It fell through the cracks. Maybe they told the president, Joe, 
Come on. You can't do that. Well, I hate, to, I hate to cut you off, but we're just about out of time there, Brother Ray. Okay. Well, all I have to say is that when next time they talked on February 12th uh, of this year, uh, Putin complained loudly that that promise had been sort of evaporated. And, you know, two weeks later, there was the, the, there was the attack on Ukraine. And for sake, you can't describe that as unprovoked, given the strategic threat that the Russians felt. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. The Biden administration is preparing to pump more weapons into Taiwan as Beijing warns against the provocative move. Also, Ukraine appears to be starting its offensive in the Kherson region. Joining us to discuss this and more, we've got James Carey. James is a host of the podcast, The Left is Dead. James, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Always good to be here. All right. I'm putting two things together. we got two articles. uh, Politico. The Biden administration plans to formally ask Congress to approve an estimated 1.1 billion arms sale to Taiwan that that includes 60 anti-ship missiles and 100 air-to-air missiles, according to three sources with direct knowledge of the package. Wow. 160 missiles. $1 billion. Somebody's getting paid. Next, uh, along with that, China will respond with decisive and firm measures if Washington continues military cooperation with Taiwan. The embassy for China's embassy in Washington said on Monday, put all this together. James Carey, what can we get from this? Well, I think you're looking at, I mean, China's been reasserting itself over territories that are legally theirs, whether it's Hong Kong or Taiwan. Um, and I think after Pelosi's visit to Taiwan last month, or earlier this month, you know, the show of strength by China after the fact was sort of, uh, you know, out of character. I won't say out of character because obviously they're not going to shoot down Nancy Pelosi's plane. But, um, you know, it's sort of people are wondering how China is going to win this thing buying their time. But I think that uh, sales to Taiwan like this, you're looking at something that's obviously meant to respond to China being angry that. The U.S. has such close ties to Taiwan. We rely on them for so much manufacturing. Um, but China doesn't need to militarily, you know, invade Taiwan. They're, they can economically strangle them. They're the leader in the Pacific Rim region, you know, and I think that we're seeing, you know, we may not see China respond directly uh, with any type of military buildup, but I think we'll see China find new ways to make life inconvenient for Taiwan should they start accepting these arms from the U.S. And talk about the military-industrial complex impact in all of this in terms of right. who's who's really supporting and promoting this policy, because $1.1 billion in arms sales to Taiwan, you, you gotta, when you follow the money, then you really know whose interests are being protected here. Of course, and of course, this is the old sort of, um, well, you know what, this is a great time to be an old defense contractor like General General Dynamics or anybody like this who makes any missile parts or things like it, because, look, you're getting paid to finally build what you wanted to build anyway. I mean, you wanted a Cold War to exist because there was a great way to get money spent all over the world to build up military installations and 
you know, how's missiles, whether it's the nuclear missiles we have in Turkey still, you know, as a reminiscence of this. Um, those types of things are done as, you know, there hasn't been a way to do that with the war on terror. Um, a lot of new types of contractors have moved in, but it's finally time for the old guys to come back, right? I mean, North, the North of Grumman's and these, um, like I said, General Dynamics, all these advanced technology uh, missile, you know, typical ground or land war of some type invasion. These companies are back, and, like, they've made a ton of money in Ukraine, and they're looking at China, China as a long-term enemy in this new Cold War, and you're seeing uh, the guys who made the old systems coming back and saying, hey, look, we have a need for these anti-ship missiles again. We have a need for these things to protect, you know, a small portion of land again. Because before, that wasn't really the case. It was more about oil, and it was more about contractors, you know, taking the day-to-day operations off our hands. But this is great for all the um, general military industrial complex, like the actual manufacturers and the districts they represent, obviously, rely on them for jobs and all these things. But, yeah, I mean, clearly, the new Cold War is great, because the war on terror, it was really tough to sell land-based, you know, defense equipment and things like that. But this... Is wonderful. It's a giveaway for, you know, the old tactics. It's a giveaway for the guys who supported that. So I think we're seeing the uh, missile manufacturers and all these guys kind of come back from the uh, sort of Cold War zombie state, and they're seeing a good way to lock out another nation. 100 AIM 9X Block 2 Sidewinder missiles, $85.6 million. The Sidewinder is made by Raytheon. The Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, was on the board of what was that company? Begins with an R. Raytheon. <laughs> well, that's how you get the experts, right? I mean, you have to have expertise. Oh, there you go. And they, they're experts in making money and they are good at it. You know, the other thing I think is look at this through the context, not just of Taiwan, of Ukraine. Right. There are three great world powers. And one of the three is pumping weapons into a border country on the other Two, if Russia and China were to start pumping weapons into Mexico, training the Mexican army, building bases and pointing missiles from Mexico, from Tijuana into the U.S. and said, oh, they have a a, a, a Mexico has a right to defend themselves. I mean, come on. They're just and then China was to say, we're going to go send our top people over to Puerto Rico with no permission from the U.S. So they can we, we meet with Tor- Puerto Rico and decide, you know, about their independence and say we support their independence, that wouldn't work. But for some reason, the U.S. feels that we can do that to Russia and China and the rest of the world is just supposed to accept it. James. Yeah, again, I think we, we're living with this sort of post-war mentality that we're the only great power around still, that we're the only manufacturing power that can. And I mean, we've seen it, you know, it's illegal for Venezuela to do business with Iran for some reason, or at least it's frowned upon and they're not even connected to the same continent technically, you know. Um, I think we're seeing this. This U.S. is looking to again, like I said, they want the old Cold War back, and I, we wouldn't obviously we wouldn't accept this, but the U.S. can't continue to act like it has military superiority everywhere because we've managed to lose our two biggest projects in the last twenty years, and now we're sending all of our reserve weapons to Ukraine, which is again costing a lot of money. I mean, those artillery shells and uh, those javelins cost plenty of money. I'm, you know, they don't even let you live fire those in classes when you're training, so. Uh, again, a giveaway, but yeah, would we accept it? No, absolutely not. I mean, we would, the Western Hemisphere is our hemisphere, right? And I, But the thing is, how long does the U.S. really have that they're going to be able to control that? Look at Venezuela dealing with Iran or China and Russia. Um, this is a country, you know, the most probably the most heavily sanctioned in this hemisphere besides like, Cuba. 
And uh, this country, you know, they get along to get along, and they have resisted the U.S. sanctions so far. They seem to be continuing. You know, they're not in the crosshairs right at this moment um, publicly. But I think, yeah, it would be unacceptable for the U.S. to do to, to have this done to them. But the thing is, we're still living with the delusion, and I don't know what it's going to take to bring that imperial delusion down, that we're the toughest kid on the block, because we've shown that we can't even handle, you know, insurgencies. The Libertarian Institute has a piece, Joe Biden's demand of unconditional surrender to Russia will fail. (laughs) And they say Biden's speech on March 26th in Warsaw removed any doubt in Moscow's governing circles that Washington's goal was Russia's destruction. Quote, that's why I came to Europe again this week with a clear and determined message for NATO. We must commit now to be in this fight for the long haul and for the years and decades to come. In case there was any lingering uncertainty, Biden said, for God's sake, this man, Putin, cannot remain in power. Uh, go ahead, man. I, 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 don't have, I don't have to set up any. Go ahead, go ahead. This is ridiculous, right? Decades? What, what is this long-term plan of his? Again, as I just said, you know, the empire can't defeat an insurgency in two countries we thought we'd mop up in a couple of weeks. And here we are funneling, you know, billions in weapons into Ukraine, and the situation is not getting any brighter for them. And this is exactly what I'm talking about, right? This is the delusion we have that we're somehow this power player, that we still call the shots, that we still get to make all the decisions. And it's never been true, but the image is more tarnished now than ever, I think. And this is just, again, trying to live in this imperial shadow that is no longer there. Biden is out here making these declarations like, we have to get rid of Putin. For one, we made him, so sorry. (laughs) <laughs> two, you know, how are you going to, what is your plan to get rid of them? And how, what does decades mean? What does decades mean? You know, thousands of dead Ukrainians, thousands of dead Poles, maybe, too, because I can guarantee NATO's not going to war over Eastern Europe. You know, um, I think you just see this, uh, this delusion we have that we're still the most powerful nation on Earth, and I don't think that's true at all. To piggyback on that a, a bit, um, Ukraine apparently um, went uh, here in the last two days. They moved on their long-anticipated southern as- offensive, and apparently it was put down with massive losses. Um, in addition, and this is uh, – got to get you to comment on this because this is kind of breaking news. Russia cuts off gas supply to French energy giant. <laughs> Gazprom has announced it will halt supplies to Engie following the French company's failure to pay for gas deliveries in July. Things are getting real tough in the gas uh, world for Europe. And I mean, let's be honest. France is the country that as soon as this war started, their finance minister literally said, we are declaring economic war on Russia. Should it be shocking that maybe Russia might fire a shot back at those who have declared economic war on them? Anyway, your thoughts on all of that, James Carey? Yeah, absolutely. It's foolish. I think everyone's learning that uh, you know, a lot of people thought, oh, under Trump, we can't, you know, our partners can't trust the United States. But I mean, partners can't trust the United States no matter what. Look, we're <laughs> going to let as many Ukrainians bleed out as we have to. We'll let as many Germans or French people be cold all winter. You know, um, we're willing to sacrifice anything for our agenda and it is follow along or, you know, get left behind. And, hey, sometimes even if you follow along, you get left behind. And that's what the Europeans learn over and over. I think they've seen it. More so since Iraq, you know, the big protest against France here, not wanting to support the war in Iraq. But look at the nuclear submarine deal that uh, just got torpedoed. Oh, AUKUS, yeah, the AUKUS deal. Yeah. I mean, Biden's torpedoing deals with France and Australia and things like that. I mean, 
there's these European countries that are going to have to learn that they can't trust us, and I think that that going all out on this is why you see the rest of the world didn't follow this because they realize they actually rely on Russia for a lot of things. And sorry for Europe, but Russia's a lot closer than we are. And I mean, this is a country that asks for vaccines first and everything first. Like you're not priority to the American uh, state. The Washington Post reports Ukraine lures Russian missiles with decoys of U.S. rocket system. So there, here, here's, the, here's the opening sentence. Ukraine may be outgunned, but in the latest sign, it's not yet outfoxed. So they're allegedly using these wooden replicas of the, I guess that's the HIMARS system, and they've taken 10 cruise missiles. Uh, what's the point here? So what? Uh, uh, you know, so Mike Tyson hits you with 30 left hooks and misses with four right crosses. Well, you're still down on the canvas getting count out for 10 real quick. Yeah. I mean, this is just a waste. It's a stupid strategy. I mean, what do they think? It's like D-Day or something. I agree. Fool the Germans on our approach, but outgunned is what? They are outgunned, and I'll tell you what, if the Russians have to, they'll drop barrels full of dynamite out of helicopter doors. They don't care, you know? (laughs) There's solutions, but the Ukrainians, they're dragging us out, and I I feel bad for them, honestly, because, you know, you're dragging it out to the behest of a country that does not care what happens to you, and I think you're just seeing desperation. This is more desperation. Getting Russia to waste five missiles, as you said, as you get hit by 300, won't do much in the long run, but good luck to them. And based on what I've seen... I might suspect that this article was just propaganda, that there ain't sure. no wooden high Mars systems, but they're tired of them blowing up the real ones, and hopefully if they can convince them there's some wooden ones too. Well, maybe they'll stop shooting if we just tell them there's wooden ones. Yeah, they're all wooden. There's no real high Mars systems there. So uh, maybe, Hey, Garland, huh? Garland, maybe they should send those wooden systems over to Hungary or wherever those people are in the forest looking for wood. Oh, there we go. They can burn them. to burn them yeah. when the winter comes. Yeah, exactly. Hey, look, the Poles are going to be wandering around the forest of Ukraine looking for the remnants of the wooden yeah. system to keep warm. We've been talking with James Carey. Yeah, yeah, you're right. We've been talking with James right. Carey. He's a uh, the host of the podcast, The Left is Dead. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's another hour on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. A U.S. judge has ruled that billions in seized Afghan funds belong to the people of Afghanistan. Also, House conservatives plan to impeach President Biden, and Iraq is still experiencing political difficulties. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have Laith Maruf. He's a broadcast journalist, and he's based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith Maruf, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. The AP reports that an influential Shiite uh, cleric, that would be Maqtada al-Sadr, announced Monday that he would resign from Iraqi politics, prompting hundreds of his angry followers to storm the government palace and sparking clashes with security forces. At least 15 protesters have been reportedly killed. Um, Iraq has been a, a bit of a mess here lately. Um, uh, Laith, what do we need to know? 
Well, it's uh, it lasted for less than 24 hours. This uh, uh, fighting, um, of course, by the end of the night last night, the government called a curfew across the whole nation. Uh, fighting continued overnight, and Muqtada uh, al-Sadr, as as announced yesterday. Uh, stepped out of all the political activities. He said he's retiring from that. He went on hunger strike. And today, then, by uh, mid-afternoon, uh, he uh, announced that uh, he called on all the, his followers to retreat, to stop the fighting, that if they don't stop firing uh, their guns, that he will... Uh, you know, stepped down as the leader of the Southern movement. He also condemned them and, um, you know, uh, praised the uh, popular mobilization units and the uh, military forces uh, and police for uh, not responding to the the fire coming from his militia. So it was a really bizarre uh, 24 hours, starting with uh, Muqtada Sadr's uh, calling his militia down to the streets, then going on a hunger strike for less than a day, and then, you know, basically, you know, burning himself down and his own militia by calling them, uh, you know, acting as terrorists, his own militia. So this is, this is unprecedented. Uh, I guess, uh, you know, whatever thoughts came into his minds, whatever pressure came down on him from within the Shia uh, clergy uh, hierarchy must have uh, made him, you know, retreat from uh, the brink of civil war. So this AP story, they say Iraq's government has been deadlocked since al-Sadr's party won the largest share of seats in the part in parliament, but not enough to secure a majority. His refusal to negotiate uh, has catapulted the country into political uncertainty. Why has he refused to negotiate? Because based upon my understanding of him from years ago, he's always tried to play the role of power broker. So why resign? Why not, since his party won the largest share of seats, why not broker the politics and carve out greater space for himself? I think that's a question for a psychologist because <laughs> honestly, watching this man uh, speak and act, there's no way anybody can understand his behavior. Not only did he win the largest block, but once he wasn't able to form a government, he ordered all his MPs to resign, which they did. They resigned, which meant the second place in all those writings that his uh, party won were uh, given to the uh, other Shia parties, which was going to make the uh, resistance uh, block in the, gov in the parliament uh, practically control two-thirds of the parliament. And this is where, you know, you think about it, you're like, okay, is this man crazy? How would he do that? And then, you know, instead of allowing, once he forced his own MPs to resign, once uh, once that happened, instead of allowing a government to be formed, he, uh, you know, blockaded the uh, parliamentary uh, judiciary arm, uh, the constitutional um, courts 
to stop them from actually installing the second in line uh, in all of those ridings. So, you know, and where does he go? He goes into the street, you know, and of course, going to the street was not going to be a successful move for him. His He may be able to have huge demonstrations, but if this was, uh, it turned into a, a, a military battle, his supporters would have been slaughtered. And uh, of course, uh, luckily, the PMU, the Popular Mobilization Units, whose offices were attacked all across the south and Baghdad by, by the militias of uh, al-Sadr, uh, at least 10 of them being burned down to the ground, uh, were very patient and held off and didn't intervene militarily uh, and let the uh, police and uh, security forces of the federal government do their work. And that was a very, very smart move uh, by the resistance bloc. Uh, they, uh, you know, saved uh, Iraq from uh, a, a civil war between the largest uh, uh, sect in the country, the Shia sect. Let me ask you this. You know, when people take to the streets, there's generally something specific that they want, or sometimes they're just angry and there's unrest. N- number one, the people who are in the streets, are these outsider back- backers, and what is it that they actually want, or do we? does anyone even really know? And what do you see in the months ahead as far as Iraq's uh, you know, political situation? Clearly, the people of Iraq, not only the followers of al-Sadr, are fed up with uh, corruption and the looting of the resources of the country. It's been almost now 20 years since the American occupation of Iraq. Uh, this was the most developed, most industrialized country in uh, in the Arabic world. Had a you know practically 99% literacy rate with the highest graduations of uh, PhDs prior to the uh, war of 1991. And since then, and since the American occupation, the country has not been able to rebuild its uh, electric grid. Uh, This is one of the largest exporters of oil in the world. Uh, Not enough uh, gas and oil in the the stations. There's no hospitals, no schools. And uh, somehow the oil continues to be sold and nobody can track the money where it's going. Of course, this is a clear indication that the occupying force of the United States and Turkey are uh, with their collaborators that came into power since the occupation in 2003 uh, are continuing to manage to loot the oil of uh, Iraq in the north, for instance. Nobody even knows what is happening to the oil in the Kurdish regions. It's all being smuggled out through Turkey, as is with the Syrian oil, uh, and then ending up feeding the Zionist colony and its industries. Uh, And the people are fed up with that. People want services. They want the minimum, and they can't even find the minimum. U.S. judge says billions in seized central bank funds belong to Afghan people. A leading U.S. uh, rights group said yesterday uh, they welcomed a federal judge's conclusion that 9-11 families should not be allowed to claim billions of dollars from Afghanistan central bank to pay off the legal judgments. Now, this can still be overturned by another judge, but uh, as we've been discussing for the last couple of weeks, this, I think, is a is a step in the right direction. How is this being reported there and, and your thoughts on the issue? 
It's being reported here as a, a moment of a rare moment of actual justice coming out from the courts of the United States. Um, of course, as you noted, this, this could be appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. Who knows how this will happen? In the meanwhile, of course, the uh, Afghani people are starving. Uh, there's uh, The only aid that they are receiving is from China, Iran, and Russia. Uh, and a continuation of, uh, as we see, drone attacks uh, flying from over Pakistan into Afghanistan. Um, the situation is very desperate, especially right now with the floods that happened in uh, Pakistan with uh, you know, over 50 million people displaced and uh, half of the country they flooded. This was one of the out, uh, you know, the the land uh, outings for people from Afghanistan, and now they can't even go to Pakistan to, to, to uh, you know, escape the poverty. So the situation is very desperate in Afghanistan, and uh, the United States seems to be very intent on continuing to genocide the population. Uh, it was genociding the population of Afghanistan with direct war for more than 20 years, and now uh, they want to starve the population and cause most of the children to die so another generation of Afghans are, is lost. Um, I hope... I hope uh, that this money comes back to the Afghani people, and but uh, that's a a very uh, big uh, you know hope, and I I don't think it I can put much into it. What are your thoughts on the uh, situ current situation now with in Pakistan regarding Imran Khan, the arrest of, and on uh, you know the attempt uh, clearly to you know suppress his ability to to run because of, of of his popularity? What are your thoughts on the current state of affairs there? Well, this, uh, that's a you know very important story, of course, uh, that got drowned a little bit with the <laughs> the floods. Excuse my uh, pun here, but uh, yes, before the floods happened, uh, this was the number one story in Afga in Pakistan. This is a country with the I think the eighth largest population in the world, uh, two hundred somewhat million people, and um, it will. It, Mr. Khan was trying to gain more independence and more sovereignty for his country, try to build relationships with his neighbors, Iran, uh, Afghanistan, China, Russia, is, and, and move away from the influence of the Gulf monarchies and their American master. Um, and uh, now uh, with these floods, it seems that Amran Khan's, uh, uh, you know, stardom is going to actually increase because the government in Pakistan hasn't been able to raise any funds to aid uh, the population, um, and no, none of the supposed allies of this coup government that came into power, uh, the American masters or their Gulf uh, lackeys, sent any aid uh, to the country. But Amran Khan, through his network and a, a broadcast, a live broadcast that was aired on the internet, managed to raise hundreds of millions of dollars from the Pakistani diaspora across the world to uh, help rebuild and house those who were affected by these floods. So ultimately, Whatever the Americans think that they can do now with the country in chaos like this, it may be actually working against 
their plans to, uh, you know, uh, ostracize uh, Amran Khan. So I'm, I'm going to ask the obvious here. We have just about a minute and a half left. So really what you see behind the scenes, the invisible hand of the United States, to use the Adam Smith economics um, uh, metaphor, the invisible hand of the United States is really behind uh, what's happened to Imran Khan and the and the current government is really is is it is it too much to say that they're really the puppets of the United States or are they just operating in United States interests? Oh no, they are definitely the puppets of the United States because these are uh, individuals that don't have much uh, of any um, support on the streets. And um, in the last uh, month or so since the coup, a few months, uh, Omran Khan's party uh, basically steamrolled in all the local elections in in most of the provinces. So in any a new federal election in Pakistan, Omran Khan would be clearly taking over the country once more. And the United States is doing everything in its power through these lackeys to make sure he doesn't rise again into power. So it's a very dangerous situation. This is a nuclear power country also. Uh, so things are are on the edge. Uh, the country is, is, of course, railing from these uh, floods and, and our hearts are with the Pakistani people. And we hope that uh, they can... Uh, rebuild and gain their sovereignty. We've been talking with Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Liz Truss appears to be planning a Washington-centered neocon foreign policy in London. Also, the transfer of weapons to Ukraine is lowering reserve stockpiles of the U.S. military. Joining us to discuss this and more, we've got investigative journalist and author Dan Lazar. Dan, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Uh, Thanks for having me. In responsible statecraft, Anatole Levin writes, The parting advice of British Prime Minister Boris Johnson to Liz Truss, who is poised to become his his successor on September 5th, began, Number one, stay close to the Americans. Rarely can any piece of advice be more unnecessary, for Truss has no intention of doing anything else, nor indeed does the greater part of the British establishment from both main parties. Dan, as their economy sinks into the abyss, they are staring very close to the people who heave them into the abyss. Dan Lazar. Well, yeah, I mean, this is Brexit playing out. I mean, uh, I mean, essentially, Brexit uh, cast uh, Britain adrift. Uh, so therefore, um, it's more reliant on the U. Since it's cut off from Europe, it's more reliant on the U.S. than ever. Um, so therefore, uh, the 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 policy throughout the, the establishment, including Labour and uh, and Conservatives, is to do whatever they can to to be America's sidekick, its lapdog. Uh, and in Liz Truss's cases, Liz, Liz Truss's case, that means actually trying to outdo the U.S. by being even more militant, more neocon, more ambitious on a global scale 
uh, and then and therefore thereby egging America on to ever more extreme actions. It's really a poisonous relationship that is going to cause great harm for both countries. The second paragraph of this piece, Johnson and Truss are, of course, conservatives, but British participation in a disastrous U.S. invasion of Iraq was ordered by Labor, Tony Blair. And then they talk about support for the U.S. plan to expand, expand NATO into Ukraine, initiated by Labor, Prime Minister Gordon Brown. So there seem to be a lot of parallels between uh, the ruling elite in Britain not really being as um, separated by by the party dynamic as as we're finding here. Yes, yes. I mean, I think what we what we've seen under Keir Starmer, who is the uh, the new chairman of the Labour Party. I mean, he has done everything he can to purge uh, the party's left wing, uh, its socialist wing, and thereby are. Uh, essentially transform it to a British version of the U.S. Democratic Party. And the Democrats, as you are, as you know, uh, are in some ways more militant in terms of foreign policy than the Republicans. I mean, uh, I mean, I mean, uh, Donald Trump, you know, did not initiate any foreign wars. Uh, Joe Biden uh, essentially kicked off one and now seems to be doing his very best to uh, to get a more America embroiled in two others, one in the uh, the Western Pacific and the other in the Persian Gulf. Uh, so that's the kind of party that the British Labour Party is evolving into. Now, let me ask you this, Dan, because I've felt like this. You know, after World War II, one of the things that happened was the Soviet Union was pretty clear. We're going to have Eastern Europe. We're going to have, you know, hegemonic designs over Eastern Europe. But there was they weren't trying to fool anybody. It's ours. They're going to do what we say. Nobody's they, we got them. Right. But they kind of made a deal that the U.S. would have the same thing in Western Europe. The difference being that the U.S. had to maintain the illusion of democracy and sovereignty and independence in Western Europe while they exercised full and complete hegemony the exact same way that the Soviet Union is. So to some extent, um, Liz Truss to me is no more than the governor of a state or as the Brits would say back in the day, the viceroy of a colony. She's not in charge of Britain any more than, you know, than, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Viceroy of India was in charge of India. Your thoughts, uh, Dan? Yeah, yeah. I mean, first of all, the um, I mean, not only did the U.S. like, you know, sort of promote democracy uh, to a certain degree while simultaneously promoting hegemony, but its promotion of democracy was part of its of its of its general strategy of embarrassing and undercutting the uh, the Soviet sphere. Um, and so the Soviet bloc. Uh, so, so the U.S. sort of like used Western democracy as a kind of offensive we weapon. It's doing the same thing today with regard to Russia or Iran or China um, and essentially trying to dress up America's, you know, more democratic system as therefore somehow proving those other countries wrong. The big problem is that America's system is really pretty un patently undemocratic these days. Uh, so it's not a very convincing act. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I agree that Liz Truss is nothing more than the, the viceroy of a colony. And in fact, uh, that's, now, that's true more now than ever because uh, thanks to Brexit uh, and and Britain's self-isolation from the uh, from the European Union, uh, but yeah, she's not in charge. 
I mean, all she can do is try to play up to the U.S., uh, try to get, stay on its good side, uh, egg it on, play the kind of the junior at, you know, attache, um, and that's it. How does Britain's Brexit factor differently into their circumstance, if I understand your point, than the rest of the EU? They're having incredibly high inflation. Their utility prices are going through the roof. They blindly follow America down that ridiculous Russian sanction rabbit hole. So, so help me, or maybe I did yes. not understand your point. No, you're, you're, that's a good point. So, so what you're asking is, what's the difference? So does, yeah. Bre- does, Brexit, does Brexit even matter? I mean, it's, and that's a good point. In in this, but in this circumstance, that yes, yeah. yes, yes, I think you're you're absolutely correct. I mean, the EU is on. You know, the EU is also seems very weak, very beholden to the U.S., uh, really at America's mercy, um, and uh, and so therefore in that situation, it's in the same boat as the as the U.K. The only difference I would argue is that in cutting itself off from the U, from the EU, uh, uh, Britain has succeeded in weakening both the EU and itself, uh, and, therefore, and therefore requiring it to play the role of U.S. lapdog you know, ever more strongly, ever more devotedly. Uh, but I, 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 but you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, it really is a, a, a choice between like, you know, cyanide and arsenic. And, and to some extent, Dan, I felt like this. Both the EU and NATO serve the same purpose. Um, the EU is an umbrella organization so that the United States can bring all of the European countries together and assume power of attorney for their, econo- for their economies. NATO is an umbrella organization and it can bring all of the EU countries together and assume power of attorney for their foreign policy. But when... The, the UK need, you know, leaves the EU. It doesn't matter in a way to the US because the UK is themselves going out of their way to try to. Uh, in fact, I'll put it this way. There's now a competition where the US can be. Is, I mean, the UK is like, no, we're even more beholden to the US than you are, EU. They can now fight a competition to show that they're bigger lapdogs than the EU could ever be. And the US can benefit off of that competition, Dan. Yeah, yeah, I, I I agree with that. Um, they're trying to outdo one another when it comes to be who as as when it comes to who can be more subservient uh, to Washington. That's that's completely correct. Uh, the only difference is that um, whereas the the nationalist element in the UK, you know, you know, is solidly in favor of being the American lapdog, uh, there's a possibility that the nationalist element in the EU might go off in a different direction. Um, and that is certainly a more anti-U.S. direction. It could also prove to be an anti-EU direction as well. We don't know how it will turn out. But the point is, the point I'm getting at is that the EU does have somewhat more maneuvering room at this point. I mean, it can, it can loosen its ties with America. It can reform its relations with America. It still has the strength uh, to to chart a more independent foreign policy. Responsible Statecraft has another piece, uh, Arctic military buildup poses new geopolitical and climate risks. A recent Senate proposal would needlessly create conditions for conflict with Russia while generating more greenhouse gas emissions. 
there does not seem to be any plot of land on the globe that the United States will not go and try to establish a military presence. Dan. Yes, this is absolutely, that's absolutely correct. In fact, indeed, it's even worse than that because this new area is opening up thanks to global warming, which the U.S. over the years has done more than any other nation to bring about. And now the result of its efforts is to open up you know, more navigable seaways and therefore a new field of competition for America to flex its military and naval uh, muscle. So therefore, its, its policies are, are, are doubly destructive. Uh, I mean, look, I mean, if there, was any, if there was any sense or reason in terms of you know, global politics, I mean, all parties would be concentrating on reduced slashing uh, CO2 emissions so as to bring this problem under control. And they're not. They're doing the opposite. They're, 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 they're fiddling while Rome burns. And meanwhile, the only thing they're doing is stepping up their military response, which will have ever more dangerous consequences. Well, you know, once again, Dan, we see this. The U.S. has become an impoverished military machine. That's all it is. It is a military machine, and the rest of the country is falling apart and impoverished and, and, and going, you know, to heck. But, again, here we see imperial overstretch. The U.S. is saying, oh, we're, we're going to need to spend more money in the Arctic. We're going to need to spend more money here. The amount of the numbers that are being spent are because there's this military-industrial complex that's grabbed the wheel, and it's it's funneling money down its throat, and it this and it, it, it with the current crop of um, politicians and people in charge, there is nothing that's going to happen anytime soon. It's going to slow that up. Your thoughts, Dan? Uh, Dan, before Dan, but, but when before you respond, Garland, if I could take issue with one thing you just said. Okay. The United States is not going to heck. The United States is going to hell in a <laughs> handbasket. Go ahead, Dan. Okay. I mean, the, um, the, I, yes, I mean, Garland is correct yet again. But the relationship is, you know, it's, it's an inverse relationship. That is, the more imperialism is in control, the worse conditions, conditions turn out to be for the mass of working Americans. And this has been the story since Vietnam, essentially. Uh, you know, and as the U.S. has pursued, you know, one adventure after the other, Conditions have gotten worse and worse for the American, you know, for American workers, people living, you know, in the in the in the Rust Belt, inner cities, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, so it's a it's an inverse relationship. You know, the more one goes up, the more the other goes down. And Dan, if the United States could even just win one, that you know that might in some form or fashion, provide some rationale, some basis of logic. But since the end of World War II, all of this imperialism and all this militarism, the United States can't bust a grape in a fruit fight. Yeah, 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 that, that, that is true. But at the same time, I think that, that the, the U.S. Uh, strategy has paid dividends. Um, you know, oh, absolutely. America lost in Vietnam. But what's the reason? First, number one, America lost in Vietnam. America won in Indonesia, where a million plus communists were slaughtered uh, in 1965, um, you know, with a full cooperation of the CIA and, uh, and other such agencies. So America lost one and it won one. And the, the result 
uh, you know, 40 years later, 50 years later, is that uh, um, Vietnam is actually friendlier to, uh, to the U.S. than it was, you know, previously. Um, the U.S. regards uh, uh, its control over Southeast Asia and Indonesia uh, has increased. I mean, lately it's been in trouble, but over the long term, its control of those areas has increased. So therefore, I guess what I'm, what I'm saying is, did America really lose in Vietnam? Uh, or is the story more complicated? And, and that, by the way, is a, is a point that, uh, that Noam Chomsky has made, that, that America actually somehow succeeded in turning that loss into a, into a victory. Well, I would add this. However, um, the Vietnam um, engagement caused the economic problems in the mid to late 70s, which created an environment to usher, usher in neoliberalism. Through that lens, it was a big loss that we're paying for and the world's paying for. So it all depends on which lens you look at it through. Um, but, but, I, but, but, but I would just say it, it, was, a, it was a big loss for, for the working class. Absolutely. I mean, as, as far as I know, the corporate elite did not suffer a bit. In fact, if anything, their their fortunes have actually increased. Yeah, that's the way it always seems to work. We're talking with Dan Lazar. He's an investigative journalist, author of many books, including America's Undeclared War. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Media bias enables Israel's war on Palestine. Also, the remains of thriving Palestinian towns remain hidden in Israeli courts. And Miko Paled writes about giving voice to the voiceless, tales from the parents of tortured Palestinian children. Joining us now is author and activist Miko Paled. Miko, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Gentlemen, it's good to be with you again. Thank you. In Miko's article, on which you can find on Mint Press News, he writes, Nowhere is Congress blind support for Israel more heinous, more horrifying, and more outrageous than the lack of support for the bill proposed by Representative Betty McCollum and known as Defending the Human Rights of Palestinian Children and Families Living Under Israeli Military Occupation Act. When I asked the now-defeated Representative Andy Levin about this issue, he said to me that, quote, No Jewish member of Congress will sign the bill and what I asked why he said it was anti-Israel. Miko Paled, is it anti-Israel? Well, it's really not important what it is anti. What's important is what it's protecting and what's protecting are the rights of children and that should be above, you know, above politics. It should be above Israel. It should be above everything else. I mean, it should be, a, it should be have wide bipartisan support. It's a bill protecting the rights of children. What is the problem with these members of Congress? And I just, as you gentlemen know, I was just in Palestine. I just got back two days ago. And the voices of Palestinian parents, Palestinian mothers, describing the torture, their torture, knowing that their kids are being tortured and they can't be with them. I mean, can you imagine your child is in the hospital and you're standing next to them and you feel their pain? Now imagine your child is in the hospital after, after being tortured by the enemy, and you cannot be there with them. You don't know how they're doing. You can't hold their hand. You know that your child is handcuffed to a bed being interrogated by people who hate you. 
You know, can you imagine this? And there's a bill in Congress by a very courageous member of Congress, Betty McCollum, wanting to address this very issue, wanting to make sure that our taxpayer money does not go to facilities and to facilitate this torture. And they can't get enough votes. They can't get enough co-sponsors to bring it to a vote. I mean, is that not the most outrageous thing I've ever heard? I don't know what is. You know, that they're torturing the children. We're talking about children. And they're torturing the parents at the same time. And, and you say anyone who's been to Palestine and has taken the time to speak to parents knows that they must endure when authorities take their children away. There is no law, no court, no human rights organization that can protect these children from the government. This is almost this is very much analogous to what happened to Native American children um, with the with the with the boarding schools. It's it's a it's a very similar policy. It's outrageous that you know sometimes even though you know all of us here you know words writing speaking is is, is our medium, but when you see something like this, you words just fail you. I mean, we'll just fail you. How can you possibly, how can you possibly not sign on to a bill that protects children? I mean, I don't, I don't understand it. Is the racism really that deep? Is the color of their skin or their identity or religion really that important that we overlook the fact that these are children that they're being boycotted, that they're being that they're being uh, tortured, detained, arrested, you know, intimidated in ways that that you know are, are so horrifying. You would you'd read about it in the horror story, and here members of Congress are feeling that they shouldn't sign it because it's I don't know anti-Israel, whatever the hell that means. You know who cares what it's anti? Let me ask you this: When you say that children are being tortured, do you have any? Um, you know, have you heard any stories about it? Any anecdotal stories about you know what kind of things are actually being done? Well, the usual stuff: deprivation of uh, of, uh, of sleep, uh, exposure to the elements, uh, sitting in tied up to a uh, in a chair for hours and hours and hours and hours. I mean, what they do is they tie these these kids to a chair in the most uncomfortable uh, position, and they keep them there for hours and hours. We're talking about fifteen, eighteen, twenty hours a day, just seated there. Um, and then from every few hours, somebody comes in and yells at them, screams at them, asks them for, for questions. And then, uh, you know, all the other forms of, um, of torture that anybody can, can imagine, both emotional and physical. You know, and we're talking about children, you know, these grown adults, grown men yelling at them, intimidating them, scaring them, screaming at them, beating them. I mean, the stories are, you know, there's, there's testimonies, there's, uh, the website, No Way to Treat a Child, which, which, you know, details all this. There's a particular prison in Jerusalem, called the Moscovia, where they have a cell number four. And they say that they call it cell number four because you come out of that cell on all fours if you ever come out. I mean, the stories are, are, are hair-raising, are horrifying. This one particular mother I spoke to had two children being detained and interrogated at the same time close to a month. One of them was taken to the hospital twice as a result uh, of what was going on. Had to be taken to the hospital twice and she couldn't visit. You know, the parents couldn't visit the child in the hospital, even though he had to go to the hospital as a result of what was being done to him by the interrogators. I mean, it, it, these are horror stories. You know, another young man I met just as he came out, he couldn't even talk. 
he couldn't even talk about the horrors that were going on, you know, describing the, the uh, what goes on in these torture chambers. And, um, and all the bill talks about, all the Betty McCollum bill says is let's not, let's make sure that our taxpayer money does not go to those facilities that, that um, engage in the torture of children. And that's impossible to bring up uh, to a vote. You have another piece entitled Underneath Israeli Tourist Resorts Lie the Remains of Once Thriving Palestinian Towns Between the Two Historic Palestinian Port Towns of Haifa and Aqqa, both occupied since 1948. There exists a lovely bay called the Bay of Haifa. Uh, what has happened in this area? You talk about heavy ethnic clen- a heavy ethnic cleansing campaign, all in the sake of tourism. W- what's going on here? Yeah, you know, it's not even tourism. It's actually colonialism because these are immigrants from Russia and the other, you know, uh, Soviet Union uh, states. Um, that have come to Israel, have received, you know, grants and, and, and stipends and subsidized housing in this fabulous uh, beachfront property. And you can tell when you're on the beach that, you know, first of all, everybody speaks Russian. Nobody speaks any other language but Russian. And you can tell that these people are not indigenous to Palestine. It's very obvious. And, you know, not a word of, uh, there's not a single sign, there's not a single name, there's not a single place there that even demonstrates that this used to be Palestine. And both Haifa and Akka, which are the two sides of the bay, are still heavily populated with Palestinians, although uh, in both cities, Palestinians are now a minority. Uh, and then and then you, you and this is indicative, like I said, to other parts of the country, but you think you're in some resort in, in I don't know, in, in the Black Sea or something. It's, it's really outrageous that these people come. And by the way, if a Palestinian wanted to buy to purchase one of these apartments, there was no way in the world, or even rent, a Palestinian would be allowed to live there. Um, and you look at this, and you see other parts of the country, other parts of Palestine that that, that look very similar. This complete, you know, Europe, 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 Europeanization and Judaization of a country that is inherently an Arab and Muslim country, and the speed with which this process is going forward is really quite striking. And so just being there between these two cities and noticing this and seeing all this, you know, these, you know, it's all Russian. I mean, there's not a single, not a single remnant of the Palestine that used to be, even though, like I said, this is between two major Palestinian cities with a very long and and rich uh, history and heritage of, of being Arab and Muslim cities. You know, um, this your next area, uh, part goes to something that I find interesting. A Palestinian living living in an unrecognized neighborhood in the city of El Lid, lied, tried to apply for an apartment where the developer said units will be made made available on a first come, first served basis. And the rest of the story is very interesting, a pe- especially being a black person in America who can identify with that story. We got uh, about four minutes. Tell us what what we need to know about that particular story. Well, the city of Lid was, again, it was a Palestinian city in 1948. It suffered, it went through a massive ethnic cleansing campaign. Uh, today, the city is about 30 to 40 percent Palestinian, and the rest are Jewish immigrants from various countries. And, you know, it's a city that, that the government, both the local and, and, and the national government, encourage people to come and live. So there's new housing being built, housing projects, schools, and so forth to, you know, to get people to come and live. A Palestinian, the Palestinians in the city suffer from a huge, extreme, extreme need for housing. 
And many of the thousands and thousands of Palestinians who live there live in what are called unrecognized neighborhoods. So you've got thousands of people living in neighborhoods inside the city that the city does not recognize. That means no trash collection, no trash receptacles, no water, no, uh, no electricity, you know, no, no parks, nothing. Nothing that recognizes that these people exist there. And the problem that this causes, you know, no roads, of course. And we're talking about thousands of people that have to go to work, that have to take their kids to school, that have to eat, that have to, you know, you know. Um, and so these Palestinians, whenever there's a new housing project, some of them are still, you know, hopeful enough to go and try to sign up. And every single time it's the same story. And this particular guy told me the story. He went with his boss, who happens to be, of course, Jewish. He went in, put his name first, and was told that he thought, you know, they're really sorry, but there are no more units left. He went back to the car, his boss went in, and they, and they gave him a choice of apartments to choose from. And when he said, he confronted the, the people at the office, at the, at the, at the office of this, of this project, they said, well, look, if we allow Arabs to come and live here, no one will buy, no one will rent. We're going to lose all our, our, our Israeli Jewish customers, and we don't want that. We can't have that. So in other words, again, this is inside, these are Israeli citizens. This is inside what's called proper Israel. It's not the West Bank. This is not Gaza. This is supposed, you know, this is where the Israeli Tel Aviv airport is in the city of Lid. Actually, they call it Tel Aviv, but it's not Tel Aviv. It's, it sits in the city of Lid. It was built before the state of Israel existed. Um, it was a Palestinian airport. But the point is that this is the reality which is Palestinian Lid, and you cannot imagine the, the condition. And this is again, this is across the street from modern housing, modern facilities, you know, sidewalks, forget sidewalks, forget parks for the kids, forget recreation, you know, trash dumps because there's no trash collection. Uh, the, the way they have to run the electricity because the city does not provide them with the services they need to, you know, for electricity. It's absolutely horrifying. And this is all throughout, this is all throughout the country, pushing out the Palestinians, making their life so miserable that they will just want to leave. Well, you know, that is just is the absolute uh, definition of apartheid. And it makes you let you understand how various um, entities from the outside have looked into looked at Israel and, and, and uh, evaluated as an apartheid society. We've been talking with Miko Peled. Miko is an author and an activist. You can find a lot of his work, great work on mintpressnews.com. And he has a great book, The General Son. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon here with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon, with my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon. Thank you, Garland. Brazilian presidential candidate Lula da Silva promises to show respect to Venezuela if he wins. Also, China is defying U.S. sanctions and buying Venezuela crude. Joining us to discuss this and more, we have Dan Kavalik. He's a writer, an author, a lawyer, and a professor. Dan Kavalik, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you so much for having me. Orinoco Tribune, Francisco Domingo Dominguez, in his article, The Stakes in Brazil's Election Couldn't Be Higher, writes, After four years of a right-wing Bolsonaro government, Brazilians will vote for a new president on October 2nd, 2022. Former President Lula, currently high in the polls, is confronting an increasingly delirious incumbent who appears to have threatened violent 
unconstitutional action should he lose? Dan, the other question is this. Is it just Bolsonaro or does he have uh, friends in the U.S. empire that maybe have an inclination to such miscreant activity? Dan, your thoughts? Yes, well, of course he does. We know this uh, because, in fact, without the United States and in particular without the Obama uh, Justice Department, uh, Bolsonaro would not be uh, president. The Justice Department uh, worked hand in glove with Brazil's Justice Department to bring false charges against Lula da Silva to put him in jail. And he was in jail at the time of the elections. Uh, which brought Bolsonaro to power, and that was all by design. So yes, we know the U.S. does not want Lula to win, and uh, I'm certain that um, um, it, the U.S. will do everything it can to either prevent him from winning or once he is won to try to derail his administration. Uh, it's interesting that it was, as you said, the Obama Justice Department, because it was also Steve Bannon that after the 2020 election went to Brazil directly and worked with Bolsonaro. Hence, a lot of the uh, Bolsonaro rhetoric sounds an awful, well, sounds very Trumpian. And the other thing I'd like to ask, and I hope I can ask this intelligently, as I understand it, there may be somewhat of a split with the ruling elite in Brazil who may not want a military intervention should Bolsonaro lose because that would challenge their abilities to operate as with the free hand that they're operating with. Any validity to that analysis and your thoughts on Bolsonaro receiving help from uh, Trumpian forces? Yes. Well, again, I think he will receive help from Trumpian forces and from Biden forces in terms of a, some sort of a military coup. You know, we have to remember that the U.S. supported a military coup in Brazil in 1964 that was successful. The military ruled Brazil up through the 80s um, with U.S. support. So that is always a possibility. But I agree. I mean, look, I think the ruling class in a country like Brazil would see a military coup as a last resort. You know, they want to have a fig leaf of democracy and legitimacy, right, because that will guarantee uh, support from the U.S. and international community. So they really don't want to go the military coup route if they don't have to. At the same time, I, I think they are tempted uh, to use it. Bolsonaro himself has said positive things about the military dictatorship. So it's always a real possibility, particularly in Latin America, that that could, uh, could happen. You could see that, by the way, in Colombia as well. I think that's, a, that's a, certainly a threat, a military-type coup. Venezuela analysis, and uh, we, we see um, uh, Jose Luis Granados Kea writes, 
Former Brazilian President Luiz Lula da Silva rejected the recognition of opposition figure Juan Guaido as president of Venezuela, calling him an imposter and said he would instead honor the self-determination of the Venezuelan people. There are a lot of things going on. I'll add something to it. There's another article, Chinese company ships crewed from Venezuela defying U.S. sanctions. We see what's going on and the new president and vice president of Colombia now assigning a diplomat to repair relations with Venezuela where the U.S. used that country to launch attacks on Venezuela. We now see Lula da Silva saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to make friends and respect them. Forget this uh, one uh, Guaido dude and China doing business right out front saying I'm not paying any attention to U.S. Uh, sanctions. Um, what are your uh, put all this together and make some sense of, us, of it for us, Dan Cavalli? Yeah, well, uh, these are all good signs. Uh, none of it too surprising, given the, the actors. Lula da Silva got along just fine uh, with Hugo Chavez and um, Gustavo Petro in Colombia is a leftist, so uh, not too surprising they would try to have friendly relationships with the Venezuelan government. And China as well. Of course, the more surprising thing is that, of course, the U.S. has sent some missions to Venezuela to try to negotiate an oil deal with Venezuela, which shows that's the real surprise and shows that Venezuela is, is, you know, becoming stronger and in a stronger position to force the U.S. to deal with the Maduro administration. I actually saw a good analysis the other day. And I think it was right on that the Juan Guaido, you know, fake presidency that, that at this point it exists for one reason and one reason only. No, no one thinks Guaido will ever have real power in Venezuela or that he really should. Right. Uh, at this point. But he's being used for one purpose only, and that is to siphon off Venezuela, uh, Venezuela's assets. Right. So. The U.S. has already essentially granted control to to uh, Guaido um, billions of dollars of resources from Venezuela, right? Claiming he's the rightful leader, and so at this point, the U.S. can't really abandon Guaido because he's sitting on top of all these resources, um, including I think he still has some. Interest in in Citgo, for example, the US, the Venezuelan oil company. So he exists for that reason and that reason only. And and I think basically no one uh, takes him seriously anymore as any contender for for president. And to that point, Dan, we didn't talk about this story. We did a couple of days ago. But to your point about assets, U.S. judge upholds con. Conoco Phillips eight and a half billion dollar award. Venezuela rejects the unlawful ruling. So I think that's a perfect example of what you're talking about. Yeah. So Conoco Phillips and other oil companies claim that they have some right to compensation for when Chavez nationalized some of the oil uh, there. And uh, again, not surprisingly. Um, uh, ConocoPhillips won in that claim against Venezuela, but of course Maduro is saying, look, we're not going to pay it. We don't think that that's right and fair. This is our oil. We have a right to nationalize it. So we'll see how all that gets sorted out. Again, I think Venezuela is in a better position now to, 
to negotiate over that sort of thing uh, and, and maybe win some concessions. Yeah, but again, I mean, I think Guaido is a figure out there who in a pinch can be given assets uh, by from Venezuela if the U.S. deems that necessary. The other thing we see here is the loss of power that the U.S. empire is having worldwide and in particular in um, Latin America in that, you know, they try to hold Venezuela down now in a desperate position. They need Venezuela. They have to get Venezuela's uh, oil back on the market. I read recently that in Venezuela's economy grew 17 percent in, in the first quarter. It is the fastest growing economy in um, Latin America. And here's what's interesting. The U.S. sanctioned Venezuela economically out of existence and then said, oh, look at the way Maduro's running this country. They're broke and they have no money. So now that they're growing at 17 percent, well, these same people say, wow, Maduro must be doing a great job. Look how fast they're growing. I have a feeling that ain't going to happen. Dan Kavalik. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and I think it is amazing what Venezuela's doing. I mean, uh because of U.S. sanctions and, again, U.S. theft, because they did steal Citgo, which was Venezuela's longest, uh, largest source, single source, source of revenue. At one point, the U.S. had Venezuela down to about zero revenue, literally, you know, um, and now they've dug themselves out of that hole. And they are, as you say, they're, they're having um, unprecedented growth. And they've gotten a lot of help from countries like Iran and China and Russia to, to make that happen. But it is really a small miracle. And um, I think Maduro needs to be applauded for that. And, yeah, now the U.S. certainly recognizes that Venezuela is not going to be beaten by the sanctions. And so I think it's waking up to the fact of, that eventually it's going to have to deal with Maduro as the legitimate government, uh, which, again – for those of us who support Venezuela, it's quite exciting. And I think there are also historic parallels. People need to understand that this is a game that the United States has been playing a very long time because this takes me back to Iran in 1953 and Mohammed Mossadegh, who wanted to nationalize Iranian oil. And I think it was Royal Dutch Shell and that, that came to the United States and said, we can't allow them to do this. And so... Uh, the United States went in and overthrew Mossadegh, brought in the Shah. And I think that was the beginning of a lot of the unrest that we find and we're still experiencing in, in, in the Middle East. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, probably the overthrow of Mossadegh was the original sin uh, of the West. In the Middle East, as you say, we've you know, the world's been paying a price for that ever since. And they, you know, they they've tried to overthrow the Venezuelan government in the same way. Uh, they did successfully for a couple of days with Chavez. Remember, helps mm -hmm. overthrow him in a coup in 2002. He, with the help of the people and loyal people in the military, he he came back to power. But I mean, they've never given up trying to regain control over Venezuela's oil, which the U.S. really had control over for about a hundred years. You know, so. They're not going to give up on that sort of thing uh, easily. But again, the fact that Chavez and Maduro have not gone the way of Mossadegh says a lot about them. 
Yes, and 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 I believe that what we will see is so similar to what we saw under Chavez in that when Venezuela was economically able, it also lent a helping hand to, you know, like Cuba and some of the other uh, countries who were um, under the under the thumb of the uh, U.S. empire. We've been talking with Dan Kavalik. He's a writer. He's an author. He's a lawyer. He's a professor. All kinds of good stuff is Dan Kavalik. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe, peace, and blessings. We are out. 